Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. What a beautiful day from baby dedication to a choir loft that is overflowing with students leading us in worship. To you that are here, recognize the uniqueness of the intergenerational aspect of this family of faith. It's one thing to talk about a family of faith. There's another thing to see the various generations gathering together, united by faith, and the baton of faithfulness being passed down from one generation to the next. And what a beautiful display of that throughout this morning. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where we are is we are in a series entitled Christ the Center. Christ the Center. And so I don't know about you, but I'm wondering if you're like me in the sense that there's some aspects of your life that cause you a low-level sense of consistent anxiety. When you're in that place, you just feel a little unsure about things. I mean, it doesn't paralyze you by any stretch of the imagination, but certain things that if it was your preference, you just would not do them. For some of you, it's heights. You just don't like to be that high up. You get to the hotel and they say, we've got a great view for you. It's on the 37th floor and your stomach just gets butterflies. Uh, For me, without a shadow of a doubt, since I was a young teenager, even till, I have to admit, even till today, when I fly, I tend to not ever feel all that comfortable. Now, it doesn't paralyze me again. I mean, I fly and I do this often enough, but I'm always holding the plane up with my prayers and with my concern for the health of the pilot. I just never, even when I'm flying internationally, and I know that I need to sleep, I know I need to sleep with every bit of turbulence, I am wide awake and I'm very cognizant. I'm always looking to the wing just to make sure it's still there and we're still okay. Now, some of this stems from early on when I started to fly, an unhealthy ignorance about what the pilot feels about turbulence. So out of my ignorance, I thought any time I'm nervous in the plane, that that means the pilot is nervous. So when we are traveling and it's choppy and the fasten your seatbelt light is on, I kind of envisioned in my mind that there are red flashing lights in the cockpit, that the, the pilot is saying things like, mayday, mayday, mayday. <laughs> this isn't going well. He, he's unfastened his tie, sweat's pouring down his brow, and we're all in this together. We're just going to, we, we might make it, we might not make it. And then I had a member of my church that was a pilot, and I talked to him about my sort of anxiety of flying. And he said, listen, Dave, the most dangerous part of flying isn't when you're in the air. It's, it's when you're driving to and from the airport. <laughs> now, the, the bad thing about that is I wish you would never have told me that. Now that I'm driving to the airport, I'm always paranoid. I'm always telling people. I'm always the guy that's like, you know, this is the most dangerous part of flying right here. What we're doing right now on the interstate. So, but he said, hey, when you, when you are traveling at 35,000 feet, And we hear air pocket, it's a little turbulent. You know what I'm doing? I'm talking to my co-pilot about what we're going to eat for dinner. I'm not phased by it. There is nothing in that commercial airliner that can happen that turbulence causes that's going to send that plane into a tailspin. There is nothing about what you're nervous about that makes me the least 
nervous. I've got it. Just sit back and relax. You know, oftentimes in life, we, we travel to destinations that we can't see. If I was in the cockpit, I think I would feel much more comfortable because I could see it. But in life, you're oftentimes on the 37th row. You don't have the vantage point. You don't have the horizon before you. So oftentimes, you're traveling and you can't exactly see what's causing the turbulence. And then there are times where you see what's causing the turbulence and you're overwhelmed because you're not in control. God's Word this morning reminds us that we have a pilot who has a sure destination in mind for us. And regardless of the turbulence that you are facing, regardless of how turbulent the air is of life, there is a pilot who has it in his hands and he is in control. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, we read these words through verse 15 and 20 that remind us that Jesus is the sole source of our security. This is what Paul would write, starting again in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is, in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We're in this series entitled Christ the Sinner. We've been reminded in the first 14 verses of Colossians 1 that Jesus is our hope, that Jesus is our salvation. And I want you to be reminded this morning that Jesus is the sole source of your security. That Jesus is the sole source of your security. Now, where do we discover that? Well, we discover it in three uh, relevant truths for your life right here from God's Word in Colossians 1. And the first truth that I want you to see in your copy of God's Word is that in Jesus, you encounter the ruler of the universe. Look again with me at verse 15 and then at verse 19. There are two words that I want you to see here and we can underline and we can circle them because we need to examine them. In verse 15, we read, He, being Jesus, is the image of, We don't talk about that. Of the invisible God, the firstborn, we need to talk about that, of all creation. And then Paul reiterates this in verse 19 where he says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So what we're discovering here, as you're looking at verse 15, is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That word image in the original language of the New Testament is a word that we receive icon from. It is a visual representation of. So you will never, this side of heaven, see, uh, see God the Father. You don't walk in the subway and say, well, there's God the Father. You don't see him at Walmart here. He is invisible to us. He is spirit. But what God's word tells us is, is that when you see Jesus revealed in scripture, you see the image, the visual representation of the invisible God. So all the characteristics of Jesus are the characteristics of God the Father. 
So Jesus, as he is loving, so God is loving. Jesus in his kindness, so God is in his kindness. Jesus in his wrath and his severity, so God in his wrath and severity. All of Jesus is a visual icon, a visual image of the invisible God. But more than that, what we discover in this passage is, is the second part. That Jesus is the firstborn, verse 15, over all creation. If Jesus is full of deity, like the Father is full of deity, if all the characteristics of God the Father are revealed in Scripture, then we have to understand, what does it mean to be firstborn over all creation? Students, when I was, when I, was uh, I don't know, seventh grade, eighth grade, I just became a Christian, and somebody gave me a Bible. Okay? So I started to read the Bible. And one of the things about reading the Bible is, is there's certain parts of Scripture that I did not understand then. And you know something about it? There's certain parts of Scripture that I still don't understand but someone told me when I was 13 years old, 14 years old, anything that you don't understand, just out in the margin, just put a question mark. I mean, don't, a way of engaging God's word is to interact with God's word. And sometimes that's putting question marks. And you know, when I was 13 years old, I put a question mark by this passage right here. And you know, now that I'm a 38-year-old pastor and I've pastored and I've gone to school to do the very thing I'm doing here is to preach God's word. You know, there's still passages that are question mark passages. I hope adults, that you never get to that place where you lose the question marks in your Bible. I hope you never get to that place where you feel as if you've exhausted what is the inexhaustible, which is the revelation of God through uh, the word of God here. And so I put question marks by this passage because it sounded to me at the first reading of it that it was saying that Jesus was the firstborn so that there was a time where Jesus did not exist And God created him. But we're saying in this passage that all of the deity dwells in Jesus. We read other passages like John 1 that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word being Jesus. So what do we do with this passage where it's the firstborn over all creation? This has been a stumbling block, even in church history. Fourth century, there's a Christian teacher by the name of Arius. He creates by taking this passage out of context, he creates a pretext that God the Father was by himself at one time and that he at one point creates Jesus so Jesus is less than the Father. Even today, the 21st century, there are certain religious groups that take this passage out of context and it becomes a pretext to make it look as if Jesus is actually created and not a part of the infinite Father, Son, Holy Spirit relationship. And so this passage here doesn't talk to us about firstborn over creation, meaning that Jesus had a time where he didn't exist and then the Father willed him into existence. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's an image, it's a metaphor. Firstborn in Jewish customs means uh, firstborn receives all of the inheritance. So all that the Father has, Jesus Christ receives it. Jesus isn't 70% God and 30% uh, the Father has the rest. That's not, that's not what this passage is saying. He is saying uh, that all of the prestige, all of the position is placed upon Jesus Christ and he is ruler over all creation. So in Jesus, you encounter the image of God, full deity. You create, you see that he is the ruler over all creation in this passage. Another way you could say that is that he, he's the boss. He's over all. There's nothing that is off limits to Jesus's reign and responsibility. There's no part of your life that he doesn't desire to be Lord of. 
There's no fault that you think that he doesn't desire to be Lord of. There's no part of your life that he doesn't claim a sense of ownership over and desire to lead you in. This is what this passage is talking about. More than just firstborn over all creation, Paul comes back to this and says, guess what? He's the head of the church. So he's saying creation over here, and he's saying church over here, all of it, I am the ruler of. It's important for us especially as you have a new pastor, it's important for you to understand how I view my role. I view my role not as God the Father sent out an ad saying, I am looking for the next CEO of this congregation. There, there is one CEO of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. I serve as the under-shepherd to the boss and to the ruler of creation and the church. And so as we look at this passage here, we discover that our security is found when you understand that in Jesus, you encounter the ruler of the universe. But more than that, looking at your copy of God's word, in Jesus, you encounter the creator of the universe. Look in verse 16. Because in verse 16, we read, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Notice a repetition here. Notice how he's saying, as comprehensively as you can imagine, Jesus has created it all. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. One of my earliest memories of having the Bible read to me, I don't know, four years old, maybe five years old, but I remember vividly my mother having this picture children's book Bible and I remember the image just vividly of Genesis 1. God the Father is Charlton Heston and Ten Commandments, Moses, look, long flowing white beard, long hair. He's stepping out of the clouds and he's all by himself. You go to Sistine Chapel, you look up at Michelangelo's depiction there of creation. You see a solitary God the Father reaching to Adam and Eve in the genesis of creation beginning there. And God is all alone. But what we discover in this passage is, is that the Father was never alone in creation. That the Spirit was always there. That Jesus was always there. Because the full deity of, of the Father dwells in Jesus. So what Father is doing, so the Son is doing. And so as the Father creates, so Jesus is present in creation. Because there's always been eternally the Father, eternally the Son, and eternally the Spirit. And they've been in this dynamic relationship. There's never been a time where the Father looks around and says, I'm all by myself. If I could only have a Son, if I could only have a Spirit, and then we get lonely so we can only have creation, then I would be fulfilled. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are wholly fulfilled in that Trinitarian relationship between Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Spirit and this dance of love. And this is what's amazing. That when you understand the self-sufficiency of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, three in one, one in three, and you understand the beauty of what our salvation cost, that Jesus, who was creator, like the Father, like the Spirit, he enters into creation. This is beyond our comprehension. This is beyond easy analogies. Because what we're saying is, is the creator entered into the space of creation. Why did he do this? Well, again, look at this passage here. To reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
So Jesus, the creator with the Father, with the Spirit, he enters into his creation to redeem us, his creatures, from a life apart from him. It's the painter. And she's completed this beautiful canvas, this masterpiece. You have the valleys and you have the mountains. And she enters into the canvas and she, she summits the mountain that she has painted. It's the uh, writer who's completed his, his masterpiece. And then he enters into chapter 1. And he is the climax of the story. He is the protagonist of the story. He is the lead character of the story. This is what we see here. C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity is kind of fumbling around for illustrations to, to illustrate what we're talking about here. And he comes to this image of this man that looks down at the stirred up ant bed. And the ants are flowing all across the gravel parking lot there. And he looks and he says, you know, the Christ stooping into creation is this man stooping down to this ant to redeem the ant colony. It is beyond our comprehension. It's something beyond easy analogies. But what the truth of it is, is when you understand that Jesus is the creator of the universe, has entered into his creation to redeem all of his creation, who by faith would trust in him, you recognize that Jesus is the creator of the universe. He is the ruler of the universe. He is the sole source of our security. But more than that, our passage tells us here that in Jesus, you encounter not only the creator, not only the ruler, but you encounter the sustainer of the universe. Look again with me at verse 17. In your Bible, Paul says that Jesus is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. In the original language of the New Testament, that, that word hold is a word that is in the perfect tense. It has this idea of not only that Jesus held things together, but he continues to hold things together. You could paraphrase it. Jesus is the glue. He's the glue that makes everything stick together. The earliest uh, really Christian threats in the American colonies was something that was called deism. A lot of early founders in American history had a tinge of deism or a real held belief in this kind of false understanding of God's role to creation, this, this deistic uh, image. And so the idea is, is that God the Father at creation, he winds everything up. He gets it going and then he steps back, never again to enter into creation, never again to have anything else to do with it. He, he gets it going and he gets the train out of the station, but he really has no present uh, ministry to it. There's no miracles. There's no kind of intervention of God the Father into his creation. This is deism. And it is an exact contradiction to the very thing that Paul is saying here. Paul, again, is saying before him is all things, and in him all things hold together. Why does our universe hold together? Why, why do we sit here, and we're not floating in the air just magically here for a lack of gravity? Why does the earth not just spin into the moon and, and uh, go spinning out of orbit into space here? Why are we here and all of the matter that's around us just doesn't implode or explode into this kind of black hole? Well, scientists think about this. They 
hypothesize about these kinds of things. And so there are four factors that I know not much of, but I certainly um, can, can relay what I know not much of. And that's, uh, they talk about gravity. They talked about electromagnetism. They talk about weak force and strong force. But even then, there's still a mystery of why all these things hold together. There's Cambridge physicist and kind of a popular science author by the name of Stephen Hawking. Many of you might be familiar with his work. You might have seen him on the Discovery Channel special. He talks about this years ago. The eventual goal of science, in Stephen Hawking's words, is to provide a single theory that describes the cohesiveness of the whole universe. That this is the goal, to describe the cohesiveness of the whole universe. Now, I do not know much about electromagnetism. I, don't, I can't parse out weak force and strong force. But I can tell you this, that when I was about seven years old, I went to a church and they taught me this song that Jesus, that he holds the whole universe in his hands. Do you remember that song? He's got the whole world in his hand. And, and do you remember the rest of that song? That he's got you and me, brother, in his hands. I don't know much about how the earths do, do not float out into the atmosphere and into space. I don't know much about how everything holds in orbit here. But I do tell you this, that I am 100% sure from God's word that he holds everything in his hands. And if he holds everything in his hands, the truth of that little Sunday school song is so true for your life. He's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. I doubt many of you came to church today to hear about electromagnetism. I doubt many of you are wondering why we uh, have all of these held together and the, the atomic participles or uh, principles of this table keep it together. I doubt many of you thought about that, but I, I can imagine that some of you are wondering, how can I hold my marriage together? Maybe even some of our students here are saying, I want to follow God as a ninth grader. I want to follow God as an 11th grader. But the pressure of my friends going in this direction, it is just so overwhelming. And I, I want to live for him. I want to be a witness for him. But boy, the, the, the pressure is just pulling me over here. You're trying to stay strong in the middle of school to be a witness for him. Maybe there's some of you that have had blessed health for decades and decades and decades. And you sat down. And you're in that consultation room with the doctor. And they gave you a diagnosis that just was the most turbulent experience of your life. And you're wondering, how can I hold it all together? I'm here to remind you, that's not your responsibility. You're not called to hold it all together. You're not called to take upon your shoulders what only he can take upon his strong hands. And that is to hold your life together. It is our responsibility to trust him as the designer and the pilot of our life. There's a wonderful pastor, maybe some of you have heard of him. His name is Kent Hughes, outside of Chicago, Wheaton, Illinois, there at College Church. And in his church, he was telling the story one time of a printing press that was made and manufactured in America. It was shipped down to South America. 
And they put it together with the employees of the South American firm and they had their best and brightest and they followed the instructions very carefully and they got it down to a T, but for whatever reason, they could not get this thing to work. And so they wrestled with it. They called in some more reinforcements from other places that were adjacent to them, but they could not get this printing press to work. So they called back to the manufacturer and said, you've got to send somebody down here that can help us. We got our best, we got our brightest. We're following the instructions as we have it, but we just cannot get this thing to work. So they hopped somebody on an airplane, 35,000 feet. He held the airplane up with his prayers. He lands. He gets off. He meets the South American officials there. He meets the corporate executives there. And they are just absolutely dismayed. They're a little offended because in their culture and in their land, uh, they, they wanted someone who had a little bit more gray in his hair. They wanted someone that had a little bit more experience. And this guy looked like he was a recent high school graduate. He looked so young. They called back to the manufacturers and they said, hey, listen, this guy is wet behind his ears. This guy surely cannot help us with this. We need your best and your brightest. And then the manufacturers in America said, we sent you the designer. There's nothing about what you're facing that he hasn't gone before and dealt with. And there's some of you in this room that you have a tendency to be a fixer like that's your job you fix things you you go into companies and when things are broken you can bring continuity to it you can fix it in life you've been able to go into communities and you've been able to organize things and things are better after your hands have been upon it and and you want to bring that fixing it attitude that fixer mentality to things that you can't fix and ultimately, you're not called to fix. You see, you've been trying to fix the staleness of your marriage for decades. And ultimately, you recognize the only person that can instill that first love in your heart and your spouse's heart is the designer of marriage, God himself. And there's some of you in this room that need to bow your knee before him and say, I will not try to fix it any longer, but I will yield to you, the designer. There's some of you that have been trying to fix a prodigal son or daughter or granddaughter or grandson. And they run further and further away. And today's the day where you trust the designer. Today's the day that you say it's out of my hands and it is out of my control and even when I do not understand I will trust there's some of you that are dealing with insurmountable at least from a human perspective diagnosis and there is a turbulence that you're facing today and I'm here to remind you that there is a pilot who you as a Christian can trust that even when you're flying through life and life seems to be so turbulent, he has a destination and you, Christian, can trust him for the rod. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we recognize today our tendency to take upon ourselves what we are not called to do. There are many of us in this room that have been trying to fix life's problems without consulting you, without yielding to you, 
without submitting to you as our only source of security. We've gone through life and we've caused or experienced tremendous amounts of ups and downs, turbulence around us. And today is the day to trust. Today is the day to be reminded that you desire to pilot our life, that you desire to lead us and to guide us, even in the midst of turbulence, even in the midst where we cannot see exactly where you're taking us, you call us to trust. May we trust you for our marriages. May we trust you for our workplaces. May we trust you for our country. May we trust you even when storms rage in the Atlantic. And when disaster strikes, may even when we do not understand it, we trust you. And when disaster comes and it knocks upon our doors, may we trust you. May we be reminded today that you are the designer. And we yield to your design. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation.